Our scripture today is from Joshua 5, 1 through 2, and 8 through 15. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Brenda. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. I don't do this often, but before we uh, go into the sermon, I wanted to, I forgot to get to Jonathan this morning when he was praying. Um, I'm, I'm excited. It's a big day. Uh, for a different reason, for me this morning, we have, we have family. My wife has family in, in uh, northwest Bradenton, basically right before you kind of cross over the causeway to go to Anna Maria. And uh, for years, they've languished uh, for a church there. And my in-laws have been without really, without really any sense of church or, or community for almost, you know, five years, seven years, and never really been plugged in and involved. So my wife and I have prayed and prayed and prayed that God would do something. And about a year ago, the Lord brought a man uh, to our uh, M&A committee in our presbytery that wanted to plant a church in Bradenton. And this morning, they're having their first worship service. And my wife is there because it was the only way we could make sure that she could get her mom and dad and her sister and brother-in-law to that service. And so she went there to take them there to pass them off to our friend Jeff to say, Jeff, please love these people. So I'm excited about that church. They're actually meeting in an outdoor pavilion, which is a very Northwest Bradenton thing to do until they can settle into the YMCA in the, in the months to come. Uh, but would you, mind, would you mind if we just stopped and prayed? Uh, it's um, Harbor Community Church is the name of the church. You can look it up online. Jeff Henderson is the pastor. He, wor- he worked and ministered there in Bradenton in the east si- on the east side and then went to Hurricane, it's not Hurricane, Hurricane, West Virginia for about five years and now he's back plant a church. And so God continues to bless. We're planting churches in our presbytery. That's a good thing. Um, But I'm excited particularly about this work for that reason because I love the city of Bradenton and they need a church. It's hard to believe that, right? But they really do need a church and he's there to do that. And so even as we think about Jeff and Marissa and all the things that we hope God does through them, 
we also hope for things in other places, not just in our city. So would you pray with me? Can we pray for that church? Father, we do pray for Harbor Community Church and for Jeff Henderson as they meet this morning, and we pray that you would give Northwest Bradenton into his hands, as you promised uh, to Joshua here of Jericho. Uh, We pray that as they meet together this morning that you would uh, encourage he and his wife and strengthen them in the work of church planting. They started with zero. Going fishing and having parties and building relationships and now there's 50-something people that are gathered together to worship and celebrate the gospel of Jesus. And so I pray that you would encourage his heart this morning. I pray for conversions early in that work, that, that, that they would see people come to faith in Jesus. Thank you for his networking and his befriending of people in that place. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come in power upon them as a group as they seek to start uh, this, this process of worship together, that you bless their time, uh, that you make it fruitful, that you bear, that you bear fruit uh, in them and through them in that city. And we just stand with them and pray uh, that you would work in a powerful way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I just wanted to do that. Now, this morning we are continuing in a series that we started Back in the fall, uh, where we're walking through the Old Testament scriptures, we've made our way to the book of Joshua. And what's happened is, if you've been with us, you probably know this. And and if not, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that uh, the generation of the Israelites that came up out of Egypt in the Exodus has died in the wilderness as they've wandered for 40 years. And now their children and their grandchildren, a whole new generation, is on the verge of entering the land that God promised to their descendant Abraham so many hundreds of years before. But before they can enter, they have to first embrace the faith of their ancestors as their own. That's what's really happening here in Joshua chapter 5. We're really going to cover chapter 3, 4, and 5, but really focus on chapter 5 this morning. And what's happening is, is they are embra- it's the process of their embracing the faith of their ancestors as their own. So just like we baptize children in this church... But we don't believe that baptism makes a child a Christian. We believe what, what makes someone a Christian is a direct, supernatural work of God's Spirit in their life to bring about repentance and faith. So we baptize looking forward to that work of the Spirit. And then, of course, as Jonathan even prayed a minute ago, every year we have a few of those kids who are baptized here at this church who get up on this stage at some point in the year And stand here and they say something like, God has worked in my life, I know that I'm a sinner, that Jesus is my Savior, and I want to live for him. What's happened is, is they've experienced what the church has referred to as a conversion. As children, their parents brought them to church, they read the Bible stories to them, they prayed with them probably before they put them to bed or whenever around the dinner table, but somewhere along the way, all of that stuff that they were involved in became real, it became theirs, And this is a passage, Joshua 3, 4, and 5, about conversion. About the process of the next generation, see, this new generation in Israel becoming God's people in a way that they weren't before. And I want to say, we believe in conversion. We believe that baptism doesn't make you a Christian, that going to church doesn't make you a Christian, that memorizing the catechism doesn't make you a Christian, although it makes you a stud. It doesn't make you a Christian. But that's pretty impressive. Right? None of these things. What makes you a Christian is that you've had a personal experience with God's power and grace, which has resulted in a decisive break with your old way of living and an equally decisive embracing of a whole new way of life in obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. That's conversion. 
And you're not a Christian unless you've experienced a conversion. And I have to say that, and I hope you understand, because there are many people who come to church but have not ever experienced a conversion. They're like these Israelites here at the beginning of chapter 3. They've heard sermons. They've read Bible stories. They've picked up the lingo, but it's not real. It's not theirs yet. They're kind of just along for the ride because it's what they've always known or it's what they think is expected of them or it's what their parents did or whatever it might be. And so we want to talk about what it looks like from this passage uh, to experience a conversion like they experience here. And there are five things that I want to mention this morning. And I know you're thinking, what? I mean, it's going to be epic this morning. This is, right, the first time ever. Five things. And I'm going to be very short. It's going to be rapid fire. But there really are, uh, there are five things, five marks of conversion that you see here in this story. And I want to talk about all five of them. And they're this. Uh, the five marks of conversion from Joshua 3, 4, and 5 are just this. And they're the five points of your outline that, that you're shaped by God's story. You share in God's holiness, you bow to God's sovereignty, you rest in God's grace, and lastly, you're nourished by God's church. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, these five things are part of the process that is before you. If you're new to church and you, want, you kind of are hoping to understand a little bit more about what it means to become a Christian and grow in your relationship with God in Christ, these five things will be helpful to you. They describe... Ways God has to specifically work in your life to turn you into a Christian. But if you're here and you're a Christian, please don't tune me out. Because sanctification is the process of growing and seeing God's work in your life deepen in each of these five areas. And so we just want to take them one at a time and talk about them briefly for a few minutes, okay? Uh, So let's look here and let's begin with this first uh, mark of conversion, okay? And the first mark of conversion that we see in this passage and the mark of growth towards spiritual maturity is just this, that your life begins to be shaped by God's story. Now remember, this is the generation that was born during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They, they weren't slaves in Egypt. They, didn't, they, didn't, they, they weren't there to see the Red Sea split open. So in chapters 3 through 5, what happens is, is you have a series of events that happen to them that God is orchestrating Uh, that are meant to connect them in their experience with the previous generation and the experience of that generation as they came up out of Egypt. So you see there in verse 1, we're told that as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and the king of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel. That's referring to the events that are recorded in Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4, which we just skipped over. And what happens is, is the people come from the east to the Jordan River, and just like the people of the previous generation who came to the shores of the Red Sea and wondered how they were going to get across, and God miraculously worked to part the Red Sea that they could cross on dry ground, so this generation comes to the Jordan River and needs to get across, and yet how are we going to get across? And God, through a supernatural intervention, parts the the Red Sea, he causes the waters to stop flowing so that his people can walk across this new generation, walking across the river just as the previous generation had walked across the sea. But not only that, you come to chapter 5 and they've experienced this miraculous work of God and the drying up of the Jordan River. And then in verse verse 2 of chapter 5, we're told that the next thing God does is he tells Joshua that, that that they need to have this ceremony, this corporate ceremony of circumcision. So the people... Just like God prescribed way back in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham and was true of all of the Israelites in Egypt, 
They've been too busy to do this, I suppose, to this point. And so they get there and God realizes, okay, we've got to take care of this as, as well. And the whole nation of people go under the knife and are circumcised because it's connecting them again. All of God's people, Genesis 17, who are part of God's covenant. The covenant sign of those people is a sign of circumcision. Not only that, but you move on in chapter 5 and you see that after this corporate ceremony of circumcision in verse 10, they celebrate the Passover meal. Which again harkens back to Exodus chapter 12. It was the meal that the Israelites celebrated on the eve before God brought them out of Egypt. They celebrated this meal only one other time at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then for the third time here in Joshua chapter 5 at the beginning of their journey into the land. And from here we know that they begin to celebrate this on an annual basis as God had commanded it. But again, they are, see they're experiencing, they're having these experiences orchestrated by God to connect them to the experiences that the previous generation had as well. And then maybe even more obvious is this experience that Joshua has with the commander of the Lord's army, beginning in verse 13, where where this man is there and Joshua approaches him and the man says to him, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And of course that would bring to memory Moses' experience at the burning bush. And so again... What you have here is the, liter- the, the literature and the way that the writer is doing this is he's telling us all of these things because the people are going through in their own way the same thing that the previous generation went through. Does that make sense? They're being initiated. And if you've ever been in a fraternity or a sorority, you know what that process of initiation is, right? It's not very fun sometimes. But it's the process of, of being brought into the community, sharing in the experiences of everybody that's gone before you so that you become a part of this new community of people. And they're being initiated. They're being storied. They had to experience what the previous generation experienced. God's saying, this is what God's saying, what I started with your parents and grandparents, I'm now continuing with you. Your life is connected to the generations that have come before you, and the only way you can make sense of your life is to see it in light of what I've been doing in your parents' generation, in the stories of the patriarchs, even all the way back to the very beginning. And the challenge in doing a series of sermons like this is that we are separated from these events by thousands of years, and so it's sometimes hard to draw lines of connection between the things we read about here in our day-to-day lives. And I tried to do that last week through the images of homesickness and homecoming, if you remember. And for Israel, the land is home. They've been homeless for nearly 500 years, and here they are poised to regain their home. And like Israel, remember what I said, the Bible says that we're homeless too, that we're waiting for a heavenly home, for the city of God. And while we wait, we wander like exiles and strangers in this world. And that, that means this. Part of what it means to be a Christian, then, is to live your life with a homesickness for heaven. And no matter how good things go, no matter how uh, well it's going in your life, you never feel completely comfortable, you never really settle in, there's always this feeling that something is just a little bit off, which is, of course, why you two can sing, even though they achieved enormous success, success and fame, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that's just C.S. Lewis. You didn't know that, did you, that you two stole from C.S. Lewis? But C.S. Lewis, who made famous the idea that we all have desires that no experience in this world can satisfy, and if that's so, then the only logical conclusion is that we've been made for another world. 
And so part of the process then of becoming a Christian is that you begin to wake up to the reality that this world is not your home and you set off on an, on an adventure or journey or a mission to find your home. That's what Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, did. You remember that? He left his father's house and followed God's call to Canaan. It's what Israel had to do in leaving Egypt, which was not their home, and, and adventuring towards the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And it's what every single one of us must do also. It's what it means to be a Christian. And that's why in Bunyan's Christian, uh, Bunyan's Christian and Pilgrim's Progress has to leave his hometown and go on an adventure towards the celestial city. We're all strangers and pilgrims wandering through the world in search of home. So do you see? You see, these stories have immense practical application for our lives. They help us imagine our lives correctly. They story our lives so that we can live faithfully as God's people. What he began with Adam, with Abraham, and here with Joshua and Israel, he's continuing with us, and that shapes the way we live in significant ways. And can I make a practical application at this point? Part of, if we're talking about conversion and what it means for us to become, you know, to move towards becoming a Christian, part of what that call is, is a willingness on your part. Uh, the, the process of becoming a Christian, the process of converting you to Christianity is that you willingly become homeless. But there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's just another way of saying, I don't have a home. Jesus had a home, but he left his home and became homeless. And if you put your faith in him and follow him, you have to become homeless too. Okay, but you might say, well, but what if that's not true of my life? I mean, I feel pretty at home. I'm pretty comfortable. Can I be your friend and say that maybe you're not a Christian yet? Maybe you need to be converted because a Christian is a person whose whole life is shaped by God's story. But secondly, second mark of conversion or growth towards spiritual maturity from this passage is not only are you shaped by God's story, but you also share in God's holiness. And this, we're told, is the purpose of the mass circumcision which is frightening, isn't it? Maybe only for men, I don't know. But it's pretty scary. And look down at verse 8. You, you, we're told in verse 8 that when the circumcision of the whole nation was finished, they remained at their places in the camp until they were healed. You think? Right? It kind of shut the whole thing down for a few days. And there was no, like, sterile operating rooms and all that kind of stuff. So just use your imagination, Okay? It's very vivid. It's very vivid. And then the Lord says, in even more vivid language, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. It's very vivid. And so circumcision was the sign of the covenant between Abraham and the Lord, and it was meant to mark Abraham and his family in a physical sense as being different than the other people around them, as belonging to God in a special way. And that's what the word holiness means. It means to set apart or to be reserved for a special use. And so in the case of Abraham, a special calling. What made him different or holy was this obedience to God and commitment to God's mission. And so when God says, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, he means I have in this act forever separated you from those 400 years of slavery. That's not who you are. Today we're starting something entirely new. You belong to me. My love my word, my mission, that's what defines you. That's what your life's about now. So when you become a Christian, God forgives your sin and accepts you as righteous in his sight because of the merits of Christ's righteousness. But that's not all. Peter writes to the church this in, in his letter. He says, as obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as those who are, as, the, as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy, Peter says, and then he defines what he means by that word. He says, not the way you used to live, but a completely new and different life. And when the Bible calls God holy, it means that he is incomparable, that there's something, how do I say this, there's some, not, that there's, um, that there's nothing or no one else like him in the whole universe. And so to be holy like he is holy, to share in his holiness means that your life becomes something completely different than it was before. Something completely different than what everybody else around you experiences. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Our assurance of pardon, the old is gone, remember? The new has come. You become something new and completely different and you stand out. A light in the darkness, a city set on a hill, beaming with beautiful works and joy that stand in stark contrast to the ugliness and sadness all around you. If your life is shaped by God's story, and if your life begins to take the shape of the gospel, and let me stop and define what I mean by that. By the gospel, I mean Jesus' dying love for you, his downward mobility, Philippians 2, into becoming nothing, his forsaking comfort and wealth and adulation for suffering and scorn. If your life takes the shape of Jesus' love for you, you'll be on a completely different trajectory than everybody else around you. You'll be holy. And again, my concern for many of you is that you might say, well, I'm not sure that's me. And so stop and consider for a minute, have you been converted? Have you been initiated? Or is your faith still the faith of your parents or your grandparents? But it's not real to you yet. It's not yours. Because see, a Christian is a person... Like, like the call comes to Joshua here, who shares in God's holiness. But then thirdly, so the third mark of conversion, not only is it that you're shaped by God's story and you share in God's holiness, but you bow, becoming, the process of becoming a Christian is, is you begin to bow to God's sovereignty. And now you're going to begin to notice that these things build on one another. And so toward the end of chapter 5, Joshua comes near to Jericho, and all of a sudden standing there in front of him is a man with a drawn sword in his hand. You see that? And Joshua approaches this man and asks the obvious question, the one that every single one of us would ask, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you a Seminole or a Gator? Right? No, that's right. Who's, right? At Winterham in high school, man, they, the guy used to pray before the game, Lord, we pray, keep everybody safe, go Big Blue, amen, right? I mean, who's God for? Does he like the Bartow Yellow Jackets or the, or the, you know, the Winter Haven Blue Devils? Who is, what is it? What side are you on? This is, what, this is what Joshua wants to know. Who do you fight for? Are you for me or are you against me? And, and do you see the man's response? It is absolutely marvelous. Joshua says, are you for us or for, are you for our adversaries? And the man answers, no. I love that. It's, it's so stunning. And here's what it means. Joshua first approaches this man to find out if he was a friend or an enemy, but by the end he's on his face in worship. Now what happened? See, Joshua didn't know it at first, but he began to realize that he had met with God himself. And when the man answered the question, are you for me or are you against me with the simple no, it became clear to Joshua what was going on. He understood what that no meant. It was a rebuke. And it meant something like, Joshua... I don't serve you. You serve me. You don't enlist me in your army, Joshua. I enlist you in mine. 
Can we just set the record straight? You don't command me. I command you. And the question is not whether I am for or against you, but whether you are for or against me. That's really helpful to me in diagnosing our sin. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, humans are by nature unable to want God to be God (laughs) because they want to be God. And that's the essence of sin. Sin's not wanting God to be God because I want to be God in this place. And if you want to know how big a problem this is in your life, don't look at the big things as much as you look at the subtle traces of it because it's very subtle. Things like how angry do you get when things don't go the way you want them to? Because anger is the check engine light for our will or our desire to control our lives. And the reason we get so angry is because, do you realize this? We approach every single person, every single situation, every single person, every relationship with the question, are you for me or against me? And when we bump up against something or someone that acts as if they're against us, anger, frustration, or anxiety. So most people, when they first come to Jesus, they come to him like Joshua did this man. They come saying, I've got an agenda, God, and I need to know if you're going to help me with my agenda. And if I think you might be helpful to me, then I'm glad to serve you. But see, that's treating God like a personal assistant, not a commander. You become a Christian when you begin to realize that God does not exist to serve you. He is the commander. He is the Lord. You realize he doesn't exist to serve you, and you hit the ground. And look what Joshua says once he realizes who's he's de- who he's dealing with. You see that in verse 14? He says, what? Joshua hits the ground, and then he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Can I translate that for you? Lord, command me. You want to know if you've been converted? You want to track your growth towards spiritual maturity this morning? Ask yourself this question. This was so helpful to me. I didn't come up with, I, well, I guess I, anyway, just... Think about it this way. Ask yourself this question. Who gets to be demanding in your relationship with God? Do you get to demand things of him or does he get to demand things of you? A Christian is a person, listen, a Christian is a person who is happy that God is God. A person who at some point in time and then more and more as they go along begins to bow to God's sovereignty. But then fourth, we got to, Keep going forth. So not only a mark of conversion, not only that you're, you're shaped by God's story and you share in God's holiness and you bow to God's sovereignty, but fourthly, and we need to make sure we get this part, the fourth mark of conversion or growth towards spiritual maturity is you rest in God's grace. And the key to understanding this part is to ask the question that this man, this man who Joshua meets near Jericho, who is he? Is he an angel? I mean, he calls himself the commander of the army of the Lord. You see that verse 14? But who exactly is he? And the commentators are pretty much united in their opinion that this probably isn't an angel because Joshua falls down on his face and worships him. And there are a couple places in the Bible where an angel shows up and the response of the person they're addressing is, by, is to fall down and worship and this is seen as a very negative thing. But not here. Joshua falls down on his face and begins to worship. But it's not a bad thing. It's a very good and appropriate thing and that leads the commentators to conclude that this can't be an angel. But if it's not an angel, then who is it? And the answer is that it must be God himself, or specifically the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This commander is the Lord Jesus. And the implication couldn't be any clearer, could it? When the man says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, verse 14, now I have come. I love that. Now I have come. 
And he's saying, I've come, Joshua, to go to war for you. The battle you're about to wage, it will be won in my strength, not yours. I'm going to do the fighting, not you. And it's reminiscent, there's a place in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 where Jehoshaphat's leading the nation of Israel out to war against an overwhelming enemy. And the Lord has to come to him to comfort him. And here are the words the Lord gives to the king. He says, do not be afraid, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to even fight. Stand firm. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel. Where Joshua and the people are weak and afraid against the strength of the people in the land. Here's Jesus. Now I have come, he says. And it's his strength, it's his work that brings the victory. The Hebrews writer in the book of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the founder of our salvation. And the word means something like captain or even champion. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, David was Israel's champion against Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. He fought Goliath as Israel's legal representative. He fought not only for them, but as them. And if he won, they won. And if he lost, they lost. So according to Hebrews, Jesus has come into the world as our champion to fight as us. And here's what this means. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then when he died, he died as you. And so now God treats you not as your sins deserve, but according to to all that Jesus deserves. And when he was raised from the dead, Jesus was raised as you. And so if your faith is in him, then the resurrection power of Jesus is active in you, moving and motivating you to obedience and love. That's the gospel. But here's the point. And this is the hardest part of this whole thing. When most people think of conversion, they think something like, I was a really bad person and then I changed my life and now I'm a really good person, or at least I'm trying to be a really good person. And that's the way too many testimonies go, but can I I say, that's not, that's not, according to the Bible, what conversion is. When you stop being bad and you start trying to be good, you're not converted yet because Christianity is not a long list of the things that you have to do for God. Rather, it's a long list of the things that God has done for you in Jesus. So you're not a Christian until you hear and understand God saying, the battle for your salvation is not yours, it's mine. You don't need to do anything. Be still and see my salvation on your behalf. And so if you come to church... And you're busy helping people and doing spiritual things, but you're anxious and obsessing about what other people might think about you or whether you're making a good impression. You're not resting. That's not resting. Or if you're overly critical of others, or pray for me, if you're overly critical of yourself, you're not resting. Because if you're critical of others, then their work's the big deal. Or if you're like me, if you're critical of yourself, then your work, you think your work is the big deal, but the gospel is Jesus' work is the big deal. Jesus' power and grace for us. And can I say, it's a lifelong battle. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you're still struggling with this, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. That's not resting. Okay, and then I felt like I needed to say, okay, and if you're discouraged, don't be discouraged about being discouraged. Because that's not resting. I know some of you. Some that I talk to all the time, right? George Whitfield. The colonial Calvinistic Methodist preacher describes it brilliantly. He says, Before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, but likewise you must be troubled over your best duties and performances. When a poor soul is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, as soon as he is awakened and senses his need for God, he says, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do everything I can. And certainly Jesus will have mercy upon me. See, that's the the bad person that tries to become a good person. But he goes on, he says, As Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together, together, 
to cover their nakedness. So the poor sinner, when awakened, too often flies to his duties and his performances to hide himself from God. And the point is, you're not a Christian until you're resting. You're not a Christian if you fly to your duties to hide from God. That's not Christian conversion. A Christian is a person who at some point and then more and more rests in God's grace. I need to be done. So the last thing, the final mark then, not only are you shaped by God's story and you share in God's holiness and you bow yourself to God's sovereignty and you begin to rest in God's grace, the final mark of conversion or growth towards spiritual maturity is that you're nourished by God's church. And I'll be really quick with this. In chapter 5, the new generation of Israelites is first circumcised and then they celebrate the Passover. And of course, the New Testament equivalent of circumcision is baptism and the New Testament equivalent of the Passover meal is the Lord's Supper. And so you have here a reference to the sacraments or to the corporate rituals that serve as identity markers for God's people. In other words, these corporate rituals of the church, the sacraments, celebrated in earnest again and again are the very thing that shape us and call us to holiness and remind us of God's power and grace. And so they're the very things that do all of these other things in us. And so just two bullet points of application. And the first is just this then, that any movement, any genuine movement toward God and repentance and faith then absolutely necessarily involves a similar movement towards God's people, towards God's church. Not in a casual involvement in the life of the church, but, but a complete immersion into the teachings and the practices of the corporate body. But then the second point of application is that it, it also involves a commitment to practice. Being a Christian, do you know this? It's just like anything else. You learn how to do it through practice. The only way to learn how to hit a curveball is you have to practice. The only way to learn to play the cello as Christina does so wonderfully, is you put in hours of practice. And if you're, ever, if you're going to be successful living the Christian life, just like in everything else, you have to practice. And the sacraments, this table we come to now, the, the ba- baptism and the things that we give ourselves to, the corporate rituals of the church, they are practice for the Christian life. They build spiritual muscles. It's through the constant, uh, the constant immersion into the practices that have been given to us as the church that we learn the lessons, that our muscles are built, that we are able to develop the skills and the habits and the disciplines that we need to be faithful and to be successful in the life that God has called us to. And so this is important stuff. And all Lent, all six Sundays of Lent, we're going to be at this table celebrating because we believe in order to be faithful, in order to become strong, we've got to practice. And so uh, we come to this table to do that this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, meet with us as we gather around your communion table now to practice. To pra- this is practice. This is, this is hearing again the truth of the gospel and, and, and driving it home to our hearts and participating in a meaningful way in something that shapes and forms us as your people in a life of holiness and a life of resting on your grace. Would you come and, and, and meet with us as we gather around this table together this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I, don't, I hope you were prepared for this, and if not, please forgive us. But every Sunday for the six Sundays of Lent, we're going to celebrate this communion meal together. And so we come to the table of the Lord this morning. And just like in any, uh, just like, uh, any week or any time we celebrate this, the same, the same warnings and, and the habit of, of spiritual self-examination uh, you know, take place, we try to help you think along the lines of this. Are you a Christian? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you had a conversion experience 
that's similar to the one I tried to outline and, and explain this morning? If so, then we would say, this, is, this table's for you. Come, eat, and drink. But if not, what you need is not this bread or this cup. In fact, if you were to take them, you would be taking them in judgment upon yourself. But what you need is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Turn to him in faith and repentance. And come talk to one of our pastors or elders. We'll be back here next week. But secondly, this is a meal of reconciliation. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it is here that we see Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed by which we are reconciled to the Father. And if that be the case, then for us to come and celebrate this meal and to celebrate the death of Jesus to reconcile us to God the Father and to not be reconciled to one another, the scripture says, is a very dangerous thing. And to eat with that being the case, is to eat in an unworthy manner. And so we caution you. The scripture would say, if, if, you, uh, if you're not at peace, if there's a need for you to be reconciled to your brother, go and be reconciled and then come to the altar. And so those two, those two words of, self, of, of warning and a call to self-examination. But if your faith is in Jesus and if you're at peace, please come to this table. We come here to practice. You know what I mean by that? I mean, this is, this is like... This is batting practice. I mean, that, that, I don't want to. I don't want to cheapen that. I don't. I, I don't mean that in any way to cheapen that. But this is where we come to rehearse yet again the truths that are that we need to know and to and to and to have come home to our hearts. Here's the re, the repetitiveness of this meal is something that's very important to our spiritual lives, and so we come here yet again to be reminded of God's love for us, so that we might be shaped by His story, share in His holiness, bow to His sovereignty. And rest in his grace. Uh, the way we do this in our church is we ask that you come down the center aisle. Our elders and deacons, hopefully. If not, some of you know interns and some of you guys help us out. Jeff, help us, whoever. Uh, we'll be here. Uh, take the bread and the cup back to your seat. Once everybody's been served, we'll partake of this together. Okay? So then on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this, body, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Ultimately, ultimately he's saying, now I have come, led to his body being broken so that ours might be spared. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Take, eat, and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. For as you do it, you proclaim my death until my coming again. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we gather around your table, Help us uh, to, through the Spirit's assistance and aid, to come and to make the most of this meal. As we take this cup and this bread into our hands and we gaze at it and we take it to our lips, would you drive home to our hearts the truth, the great truth and the mystery of the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. May it strip away all of our doubts and fears, all of our discouragements, and worries, and may you come, Lord Jesus, to be formed in us, that we might be a people that bear fruit, that would be to your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come to Jesus. Amen. That didn't work. Good grief. Hello. Hello. Come to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. There we go. If your faith is in Jesus, come to him. Again, here's practice. Come to him and receive, receive the promise by faith of this benediction that if, you're, if you've put your faith in him, that he's for you. That means he goes to fight for you. He has come, as the commander says. Uh, and now he sends you, but not alone. He promises from Matthew 28, 
lo, I am with you always in the old King James Version, to the end of the age. And so go, knowing that to be true, and go encourage uh, to, the, to the wars and the battles and the struggles that he calls you to. Receive the promise of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.